0: And have, have a seat. And as you do, um, you know what's coming next. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Philippians chapter two. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, you'll find a black hardcover Bible. Uh, find the table of contents in that and find this book of Philippians towards the back. We're in chapter two here today. I love the reminder that I get of the simplicity of just hearing God's word read. I, I hope for certain hearts in here, there were certain passages that the Lord used to speak to your heart in that moment right there, and that's why every Sunday, no matter who gets up here and stands behind this table, um, the first words coming out of their mouth are, are, open your Bible to, guess Why? Because and that flies in the face of like the the public speaking coaching. Make sure your first words are like really cool and crafty and like hogwash. Let the first words be open your Bible to. It doesn't matter about cool crafty words and what we have to say. Amen. It matters what God says, and that's so cool when we just read the word of God and let it speak to our heart, and that's why we get in this book every single week, because we're all about the word of God here, and why are we all about the word of God here? Because we're all about the God of that word. That's what we do. I want to start, before we jump into our study in Philippians 2, I want to start with a defining a a, a term we hear thrown around a decent amount, Uh, an unsung hero. What's an unsung hero? An unsung hero is a person who makes a substantive yet unrecognized contribution. Uh, A substantive and yet unrecognized contribution. And so uh, throughout history, throughout kind of sports, throughout all these different things, there's been these unsung heroes. And uh, let me introduce you to a couple. You probably have maybe heard of this guy in history, a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. Um, If you've heard this name, you know his name is pretty much synonymous with the abolition of slavery, the slave trade in Great Britain. He was a politician who kind of championed the cause to get the slave trade to end in England. Um, And so if you've heard of the name William Wilberforce, you probably, or maybe not, unless you're kind of a real history buff, have not heard of the name Thomas Clarkson. Thomas Clarkson was actually kind of the instigator behind the slave trade being abolished. This guy would actually sneak onto the slave trade ships, and then he would report the just awful and horrendous conditions in which these people were being transported from Africa to England. Um, Wilberforce is kind of the hero of the abolishing of the slave trade in England, but it wouldn't have happened without the work of Thomas Clarkson that kind of went underneath all that. Or how about an example from science? Um, You probably don't recognize these guys by the face, but you will recognize their names. Watson and Crick. You heard that back to science class? You remember those names, Watson and Crick. Uh, Credited with uh, the unveiling, the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA, I'm sounding way smarter right now than I actually am. I brought the very first page of my manuscript with me so I'd actually say this stuff correctly. The discovery of the double helix structure of DNA credited to these two scientists, Watson and Crick. What is less known is that behind Watson and Crick um, was this woman who, if not for her work, this may have never come about, a woman uh, by the name of Rosalind Franklin. And Rosalind Franklin was instrumental in feeding the scientists these x-ray diffraction images of DNA. You know what that is? I don't either. But she was influential in feeding the scientists these x-ray diffraction images that allowed them to uncover the structure of DNA. Watson and Crick, the heroes, the Nobel Prize winners, but without Rosalind Franklin, uh, who knows how much longer it would have taken to uncover that. And if all of that is way over your head like it is mine, uh, you might recognize this guy who's going on the screen right now. Uh, football fans, who's that? Emmitt Smith. Emmitt Smith, like uh, greatest, maybe some argue, I don't. Some argue the greatest running back the NFL's ever seen, kind of the, the hero of Cowboys history, Dallas Cowboys history. How many Cowboys fans do we have in the room? Wow, that's unfortunate. Um The hero Emmett Smith never happens without the five guys whose picture is going to go right here. How about some offensive line love, huh? Emmett Smith doesn't happen without the unsung heroes of the offensive line in front of him. An unsung hero. uh, Someone who makes a substantive yet unrecognized contribution. I start with that because when we pick up our study in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through verse 30. When you come to this section in the Bible, it could be very easy to just kind of quick, quickly read through it and turn the page to chapter 3. Um, what you see when you come to Philippians 2, 19 through 30, it's like a really specific kind of ministry logistics uh, um, talk here. And you can read these parts of Paul's letters and go, okay, okay, um, on to the next thing. This doesn't seem like this has huge application for me. But one thing I want us to see about what Paul does when he gets to this letter, gets gets to this part of the letter, it's he's going to highlight for us two men, two unsung heroes in the book of Philippians, two men, had they not been highlighted here, we probably never would have heard anything about in this book. Uh, One of these guys' names is a guy by the name of Timothy. If you've studied the New Testament, you've no doubt heard this guy's name before. Another guy, uh, this name might be new to you, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, these two are quiet, unsung heroes, just average Joe type people, people like you and I. And so when you read the Bible and you read the hit, the kind of what you look at as the heroes of Scripture, guys like Paul. Listen, sometimes we read that and we go, man, I can never do like what Paul's doing. Um, This, when we get here, is hope for average people like us that God loves to use quiet, unsung heroes who are known by what I'm focusing in on this morning, two quietly crucial character qualities. That there's some things that are going to bubble to the surface about this guy named Timothy and this guy named Epaphroditus that we are going to ask God to cultivate in our hearts today. That we believe that God will quietly make great use of those people who are full of these two character qualities that these two men are going to raise before us today as Paul takes some time to speak to these guys. And so the question is, what are these character qualities? Does our life exemplify them? If so, how do we maximize these to the glory of God and the good of his service? And if not, how do we ask the Spirit of God to help cultivate these things in us this morning? Um, Before we jump in, pray with me, and let's get into it. Father, so thankful for your word. Lord, thankful that all of your word is living and active. It's all profitable. It's all useful. God, your word's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And yet, God, I recognize right now, apart from the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, nothing of lasting, eternal, significant, supernatural value takes place this morning. You've already told us to herald, to preach, to proclaim your word. And you've promised us in your word that you will will not let your word return void. And so God would now your spirit blow the power behind the proclamation of your word that's about to happen in the coming minutes. God, would you get me out of the way in that? Would you, Lord, restrain my mouth from any sort of distraction? And would all that happens here just be about heralding your word and celebrating your glory? I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, chapter, verse 19. And the word of God says, I hope in the Lord, this is Paul writing back to this church in Philippi, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send, who does he want to send? What's it say? To send Timothy to you soon. Don't miss that, soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all, who's they all? Everyone else, kind of the typical people of the world. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as, what's the word? What's the word? Just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. Also, why in the world has Paul stopped and made all of these notes about Timothy? Why didn't Paul just go right to what it says in verse twenty-five? I'm going to send you a um, Scholars believe that when the Philippian church sent their financial gift to Paul to provide for him while he was in prison, they sent with it a little note. They sent with it. They sent with Paphroditus a message, hey. When Epaphroditus gets there, can you do us a favor? Can you send Timothy back to us? We got some things going on in our church right now. We need some strong leadership. We think Timothy's the guy. The Philippians knew who Timothy was. Timothy was with Paul when Paul did ministry there. The Philippians loved this young pastor in ministry named Timothy. Will you please send us Timothy? Now, Paul... imagine this, you know, have you ever walked into a room and you, you, you just felt the sense like, I think people were expecting someone else, you know, that feeling? So imagine Epaphroditus now showing back up in town and people are like, oh, hey, Paul's speaking into why in the world they're about to see Epaphroditus before they see Timothy. And look at what he says about it. Uh, 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. What's the word? Soon. Not yet. I know you guys want Timothy right now, but I can't afford to send Timothy back yet. Why, Paul? Um, For I have no one like him. Remember, where is Paul writing this letter from? He's writing this letter from prison. And when you read the letters that Paul wrote throughout the New Testament, you will find this recurring theme of Timothy being over there quietly in the corner, just serving Paul, serving the church, and serving the Lord in this quietly crucial way. Now here's Paul in prison and Timothy's going, I got, or uh, Paul's going, I got no one like him. Paul can receive visitors at this time. And you can just imagine here, um, Paul's going, hey, Timothy, tomorrow, um, when you come for the visit, I was a little cold last night. Can you, can you pick up an extra blanket on the way? Hey, Timothy, the food here is awful. Can you grab a loaf of bread, man, on your visit when you're coming tomorrow? Hey, Timothy, there's, I can only do so much to be serving and loving on and, and leading, um, doing, leading the charge with these churches we've planted. Can you check on them? Can you do ministry while God has me caught in this prison here? Paul's like, I need Timothy here still. And this is what he says um, later on in the passage we read, verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I hope I can send Timothy your way once I know whether I'm getting out of prison, when I'm getting out of prison, how this is all going to shake down. Now, this guy, Timothy, I just, I just want us to zero in here. Paul is kind of the guy in the New Testament who can make the headlines. Paul's that strong leader, just leading the charge and going into new cities and let's get a church planted here. And let's Timothy is uh, kind of less of the headline worthy guy. Tim- Timothy is just the guy who you'll see pop up throughout different letters, just like we see it here. T- Timothy's the guy in this case where Paul's going, like, like a son serves his daddy. That's how Timothy has been serving me. Bringing blankets, grabbing me some food. There's, there's just this phrase for Timothy that I want to encourage us to steward in our own life here today that God will quietly make great use of those people who are, and here's the phrase, who are just dependably faithful. God has a way of hearing Quietly making great use out of those people who are just known by the, just being a dependably faithful people. And listen dependable faithfulness isn't often headline worthy. You're not going to pick up the indie star tomorrow and find on the front page, uh, man serves factory role 41 years. Father walks in the door again at 5.30 p.m., gets on the floor and plays trains with his three-year-old. These are the things that just don't make the headlines. And yet this dependable faithfulness, us being obedient to do day in, day out, what God has called us to do are the things that though they might not make the headlines in our culture, one day we'll stand before our maker and he'll look and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is the cumulative efforts of just showing up and being faithful to the roles God has called us to play that God has a way of just smiling down on. And what you see in the life of Timothy and what Paul pulls out and what he has to say about him is a man who epitomizes dependable faithfulness. And so that's great and all, but what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to be a a beacon of dependability, of faithfulness in in our workplace? Uh, Did you know this? And you've probably heard a statistic like this. My generation, millennials, we will change jobs four times in our first 10 to 15 years out of college. Everyone older than a, a, a millennial is like, yeah, I know that. You guys don't commit to Jack, right? That we, we will change. And now listen, I, the, don't miss the point in this. If God's telling you to change jobs, change jobs. But is it possible that sometimes we're just so quick to bail from things before we've even reached a place where we can make any sort of impact on that place? And what would it look like for us as Jesus followers? In our workplaces, that our name just becomes almost synonymous with this dependable faithfulness. Oh, oh, Jim said it, take it to the bank. It'll happen. Oh, Sherry said it, it's it's already done. Like the impact we have for Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we 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 segregate things into like the spiritual realm and then like the career or corporate or work realm. What if that is all very blended before the eyes of our God? and says some of the greatest impact you have is just to keep your word, to be a picture of dependable faithfulness in your workplace. The impact that could have for our Savior is phenomenal. Just showing up day after day, year after year, Monday morning, guess what? For some, most of us in this room, an alarm clock's gonna go off. And we have a choice right there how we're gonna attack that day for the glory of Jesus Christ. But let me say this, the impact of dependable faithfulness. Why, why at every wedding, nearly every wedding, do you come to the reception and there's always, there's always one song that gets played at the reception? Not the electric slide, a different one. <laughs> Slow song. All the, married, all the married couples out on the dance floor, right? And then you know how it goes. If you've been married five years, less than five years, leave the dance floor. Less than 10, less than 15, all the way up until what happens? You're left with just that one couple slow dancing, very slowly. (laughs) And the DJ walks out How long have you been married? 62 years. Modern day heroes. Because you don't get there without a commitment to just the simplicity of we believe God will honor dependable faithfulness in a marriage. When we looked each other in the eyes and when we held hands and when we said for better or worse, we meant it. In sickness and in health, we meant it. And just every day they got up through the great seasons going, marriage is awesome. And through the deep valleys going, I don't even know who I married. They kept faithful to each other. Parents, our greatest impact in parenting isn't like the one or two like awesome all-star weekends we throw for our kids. You were were never there as a dad. Dude, I gave you like an awesome five-year-old birthday party, bro. You know? The greatest impact in parenting is the dependable faithfulness, the cumulative effort of just day after day after day, walking in the door, getting on the floor with your toddler. Those toddlers grow up to be young teenagers, sitting in the living room and stepping your foot into the world of your young teen and asking them what's on their young teenage mind. Sitting at the dinner table with the 17, 18 year old night after night, who's putting on the facade like they're so excited that they're leaving the house and they can't wait. And inside there's nervousness, anxiety, and fear of the unknown, and just day after day, night after night, showing up, being there, being intentional, don't underestimate the cumulative effort of what dependable faithfulness looks like in our workplaces, in our homes, with our friends, with our greater family. The adult, child, caring day after day for the aging parent, the friend on the other side of the text on the phone call. I think Timothy is just this model of dependable faithfulness. And I just ask us, is this true in our own life? Do we see a commitment to just show up and be there day after day after day after day? So if Timothy is a model of this characteristic that I believe God blesses greatly, that God will quietly make great use of people who are just dependably faithful. Um, verse 25 is going to introduce us to a guy we know even less about. A guy by the name of Epaphroditus. Look at what Paul says now in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Apaphroditus, my Brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was near to death, but God had mercy on, on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why, Paul? For he nearly died for the work of Christ. What's the next word right after that? Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Uh, These two quietly crucial characteristics I want to highlight from these two men. God will quietly make great use of those who are dependably faithful. And secondly, God will quietly make great use of those who are sacrificially risking. I want you to understand who this guy Epaphroditus was. Epaphroditus is a member of the Philippian church. Uh, This church, it'd be like us going, hey um, guys, one of our missionaries um, just got thrown into prison over in Rome. And so at the end of the service today, we're going to take up an offering. Uh, um, we want to be a part of providing for his needs. He can, he can have visitors while he's in prison. We can provide money that this guy can bring him food and whatnot. This is what the Philippian church did. They took an offering. And now they go, uh, someone needs to take this to Rome. And they looked around there and they said, uh, Epaph, it's you, bro. Like, you're the guy. Now think about that. They just chose someone to carry a whole bunch of loot a long, long way. This was not a hop, skip, and a jump over to the next town over. That tells you something about the character of this guy. But it also tells you something about the commitment of this guy, because I want you to see the journey that would have been made. Um, over on the right-hand side of the screen here, uh, you'll see the town of Philippi, um, Aphrodite most likely followed this highway, the main highway kind of through Philippi, the Via Ignatia, all the way to the coast. That itself is 350 miles on foot. That's a long walk. He then would have gotten to the coast and he would have jumped on a ship that would have sailed probably about 80 miles, probably down to this port city at the time called Brundisium, modern day Brindisi. Um, And that ship ride wouldn't have exactly been a Royal Caribbean-type experience there. Once he hits land in Italy, he's probably thinking, sweet, I'm here. Only to step off the ship and now another roughly 350 miles northwest to reach Rome. This scholars think at best, I mean, if everything went seamless and flawless, you're talking a six-week journey. This probably more realistically is you're looking at three months plus for him to make this trip. And it makes sense now when you go, yes, he did fall ill, can you imagine what those, the conditions on that ship would have been like? Can you imagine the on foot, roughly 700 miles, he did fall ill. And it says he nearly died for this. But there's something I want you to notice. If you are sick nearly to the point of death, guess what? You're really, really sick. At anywhere along this journey, Epaphroditus could have just thrown the white flag up and said, I'm, I'm done. And no one would have blamed him. He could have turned around and gone back, but risking his own life, Paul says, he presses on with the mission that God had given him and what the church had asked him to, he presses on. And now um, I want to go after something a bit uncomfortably for us this morning about this idea of being a people who are all about sacrificial risk. Um, a guy named John Piper, you maybe have heard of him. He was a pastor. He's retired now. Kind of a leading Christian thinker, writes a lot of books. But he wrote a book by this title, Risk is Right. And in, the, in this book, um, he basically lays out the premise that safety is a myth I love what he says um, right at the beginning of chapter two of this book. He says, if our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk, and risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. John, I just wish you'd be more direct with us, right? I want to go after... A sub gospel that in 2,000 years of the f- history of our faith has crept into American suburbia Christianity. And that sub gospel that we don't often voice, but we believe maybe, not all of us, but some of us in here believe in our heart of hearts, is that God would never ask us to do something that's not safe. It's false, it's a lie. When you look at the first century Jesus followers, imagine this, imagine this. Epaphroditus is packing his bags up. He's loading them on his back. He knows what's out ahead of him. He knows that Rome's not the next town over. A guy shows up at the door and knocks. Hey, Epaphroditus, can we talk for a second? Hey, man, I'm, I know you're about to take off, but I'm super worried about this. I mean, do you understand how long this journey is? Do you understand? Um, you're carrying a lot of cash, man. You're, you could probably get jumped on this trip. You, you're probably going to face some, some harm. Um, do, you, do you understand how long this is? To walking and then the ship ride. You're, dude, you could die on this. You could get so sick and no one is going with you to help you. Epaphroditus, I'm not sure about this, man. Hey, why are you not sure? I just don't think it's safe. Can't you see Epaphroditus standing there like, bro, I know it's not safe. I know it's risky. I know the duration of it. I know that I have all the cash. I know I could get jumped. I know I I could die. But it's for the Lord. It's what he's called me to. This is what allows us a couple weeks ago to bring a 22-year-old guy on stage, uh, Aaron Harris, if you were here that Sunday just graduated college, has degree in hand, can do whatever he wants in this country with that degree. uh, He had opportunities to stay. And he knew years ago, sitting at a conference down in Orlando, that God had called him to go minister to the people of Brazil, to bring the gospel, to be a part of sharing the gospel in Brazil. And off he goes, and we send him, the 22-year-old, down for the spread of the gospel in Brazil. That's a young man who understands this whole idea, risk is right. For the glory of God, for the advance of the gospel, for the good of others, risk is right. And now some of us are going, yeah, but we're not all called. We're not all called to make the 700-mile journey. We're We're not all called to go to Brazil. You're right. What's it look like, this risk is right mentality for the public school teacher? I'm going to get all controversial up in here today, okay? If I fail at everything else, I'm going to spark great small group discussion. What's it look like for the public school teacher who sees the opportunity to tell a kid about Jesus? And who right now is going, okay, I recognize the risk. I recognize some of what this could mean job-wise, but I'm taking it. Let's talk about Jesus. You're like, did you just encourage our public school teachers to talk to kids about Jesus? I did when the Spirit of God opens opportunities to. You're like, I disagree. That's okay. Does it look like for us to live with the mentality of risk is right, to walk across the street to the neighbor who you know is so anti-the gospel, so anti-anything Jesus, and to, to risk, to put on the line a potential relationship with the neighbor, to go, we, 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 gotta, we can't move away from here one day and never have talked to them about Jesus Christ. To look like, to live this risk is right mentality, to see a need within the body and go, that family just fell on extremely hard financial situation. I feel prompted by God to contribute into their financial need in the moment. And our contribution this month means we're kind of living by faith a little bit next month you're like, this is just ludicrous. This is just, this is not responsible living. I don't read the book of Acts and go, wow, those guys were so responsible. Love Jesus, beat, beat, beat in prison. Go back that night, pray. You guys, what do you want to do tomorrow? Do you want to do that all over again? Let's go do it all over again. Guys, we can be the typical American suburban church if we want to be. We can come here on Sunday. We can preach our nice messages. We can sing our nice songs. We can go home and live in our comfortable suburban bubbles, or we can be biblical Christians. I'm for the latter. And it's really quiet in here right now. I just want to... On this note, remember, don't lose sight of where we're at. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Paul's celebrating this. He's not saying he was so irresponsible to come on this journey. He's celebrating. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The mission God gave him was more important to him than his own life. And so church, um, let me just talk corporately about an opportunity. I think the Lord is continuing to lead us down as a church here. Um, uh, in August of 2016, I stood up on this pulpit and I, I told our church that we believed God was calling us. We're a church planting church. We want to plant churches that plant churches and we want to do it till Jesus comes back. And I told us in August of 2016 that one of the things we wanted to be about was planting a, a church in a um, high poverty high high crime we want to plant a vertical church that's going to preach the gospel preach God's word in a neighborhood right here in Indianapolis desperately in need of that because we believe something fundamentally that the gospel truly has the power to change everything some of us really believe that the gospel has the power to change everything right it can change a life, which can change a family, which can change a block, which can change a neighborhood, which can change schools. It's the gospel, folks. And we just stood up here in August of 2016. We just, believe, we just said, we believe God's calling us to plant a church down in that city. You're like, what's going on with that? Let me tell you. So what we did is we started, we, we started having meetings with inner city pastors, with guys doing ministry in these contexts, in these neighborhoods. And we just started sharing our heart with them. Hey, we're a church on the south side. We're kind of down in Greenwood. And we feel the Lord calling us to be a part of seeing a work established in a neighborhood like this. And in every meeting, to the T, I'd be sitting in, these, their, in their living rooms, in their neighborhoods. We'd be meeting at their church in their neighborhood. And they'd say, okay, look at me. okay. Whatever you do, please don't bring your suburban model of how to plant a church into our hood and just think it's going to work. I was like, don't bring suburban, got it. And they're like, no, you don't. No, you don't. This is whatever he'd like, suburban churches love to be like, we want to plant a church and they all come in and they all they all just lay out the model of what they did in suburbia and they're just like, Everyone come to church now. Whatever you do, don't bring your suburban model into our neighborhood and just run the play and think it's going to work. And so there I am, like rolling our plans up and like stuffing them. (laughs) What what were we going to do? We were going to go in and plant a church the only way we knew how to plant a church. Like God seems to be using it here. Let's go do it there. And so since all those conversations, just learning and gleaning, the Lord has stripped us down, I think, in the last, you know, just over a year uh, to to now get us at a foundation where like there's none of our like suburbia ego and pride and like we think we know how to do this thing in it. you're like, what's the plan going forward? Uh, A lot of prayer. And will you join us in that? Because God's totally stripped all of our pride to go, oh, we got no plan. And yet what we've found now that God has stripped us to this point and is now he is bringing us things out of the blue to be a part of this. The elders up at Harvest North Indy up in Carmel, um, their pastor calls one day and says, hey man, um," uh, wasn't a call, it was an email. Hey man, um, our elders believe that God has called us to be a part of planting a church um, in kind of the inner city urban core of Indy. I'm like, no way, us too. So like, hey, what if we met together? I, only our God. We're meeting at Calvin Fletcher's at a coffee, uh, coffee place down in Fountain Square there. Uh, I got a phone call while I was in that meeting. It was someone who lives down in the urban core is doing ministry down in the urban core. I, I didn't answer it. I leave the meeting with Harvest North and he's like, we don't know what this is going to look like, but we want to see a church established. Okay, awesome. I get in the car. I listen to my voicemail. Hey, Brock, so-and-so from this ministry. I'm not going to say names. Um, hey, I don't know where you guys are at on the whole inner city thing, but I think there's a potential, like our facility we just use. I think it's going to come available. Like, can we talk about the potential of you guys being a part of that? This is what we see the Lord starting to do. And we want to be a church that's all about a gospel transformative church happening in a neighborhood in Indianapolis that's in desperate need of seeing gospel transformation happen. Amen? Now, let me say this. Whenever God brings this timing about, and we stand up here and we say, we got the neighborhood. We think this is where God's leading us. The Lord's led us to a a pastor that we think God has called to to plant the church. Now, church, listen. We need some of you to go and be a part of the core group of establishing this church. Amen, I think. That's right. Come on. That's right. That just made my Sunday. (laughs) It's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. Where your pastor is going to stand up here and your elders and your pastors, and we're going to say, God has cleared the Red Sea. He's shown us where we're going. He's shown us the pastor to lead the charge. We're getting behind it financially. And God is calling some of you to go be a part of the core of establishing this church. And not all of us, not all of us. And there's no spiritual superiority if you do think God and you go and do this one day. But God is going to, that day, he's going to start to tug at some hearts. And you're going to go, no, 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 no. You're like, I'll pray about it, God. He's going to tug at hearts. And then that tugging is going to turn into like this rope. He's going to wrap around it and he's just going to start pulling. And you're going to sit across from your wife or your husband and you're going to go, I think we're supposed to be part of the core group for that church. And inner city ministry is way different than suburbia. If you're going to do it well, you move there and you'd be part of the neighborhood. I think God's calling us to move our family into there. And your friends are going to go, with them. do you understand the poverty rate? Do you understand the crime rate of them? Have you seen the scores of their elementary schools? Did you see what happened in their high school on the news this last week? The grandparents to your children are going to go, I forbid you to move my grandchildren into that neighborhood. They will, they will. Do you guys understand what you're doing? Do you know how unsafe this is? Do you know how risky this could be? Yes, we understand how risky this could be. We understand all of the possible ramifications of of what happened. Trust me, the nightmares you have in your head about your grandchildren are things I've played out of what could potentially be for my kids in ways you can't even understand it is risk, but we believe that risk is right for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Christ and the good of other people. We can be typical suburban American church if we want. Do you guys just want to make like the, you know, 100 fastest growing churches in the world or in America every year and just celebrate that? Do, you want to, do we want to celebrate the success of our church based on how many seats and the seating capacity and how many butts are just coming and sitting in seats every Sunday? Or do we wanna celebrate it by the sending capacity of going more disciples out the door, more churches planted, even in the risky parts of our city, even in the risky parts of our country, and even in the risky parts of our, of our world to the glory of Jesus Christ. I wanna be a part of a suburban church like that. So I'm over time. Stand with me. I think in a culture where we love things that are headline worthy, we love things that are flashy and splashy. We lose sight of just celebrating those quiet, crucial character qualities that God just seems to desire to you. I pray for us as a church this week that we would fall in love with being a people, a Jesus followers who are just dependably faithful. When the alarm clock goes off and back to work another Monday and then back through the door that night, that we would just be known for our faithfulness. And then I pray, church, that we would be a church that would not shrink back, that would not say, that it can't be of the Lord because it's not safe. That we would live out an almost exact opposite. You know, it's not safe. And yet it might be of the Lord. The life of following Jesus is costly, which means it's risk, which means risk is right. To do anything less is to just waste our life. We say hard things to you, Harvests, because we love you. We love you. And our love for you is in us not falling into the typical suburbia Christianity, but as being a people whose lives make sense based on what we read in this book. We love you, Harvest. You're loved. We'll see you here next Sunday. Have a great week.